Welcome to Ramble City. With Dire Straits, then I was involved, obviously, from the beginning right through to the end of the, of the recording process. So that's a long time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you definitely pretty much don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> Everybody else wants to except except me. So, um, but with other other people, I mean, sometimes I I, I can go in, in 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 and out of the studio. I played on seven tracks in a day. Yeah. Uh, and um, I couldn't tell you what I played. Basically, it's just it was just. How did a 13-year-old musician playing Hammond organ in working clubs of North East London go on to tour the world and create some of the most beloved rock albums of the 1980s? Hello, Bradley McCoy here. Welcome to this week's double episode version of Ramble City, featuring the award-winning musician slash producer slash composer Alan Clark from Dire Straits, from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, He's won multiple Grammys with the band, Brits and MTV Award winners, and they've sold an estimated oh, 100 million units worldwide, including 51.4 million certified units. Never forget the 0.4. That's still 400,000 units. Making Dire Straits one of the best-selling music acts of the 20th century. In this brilliant chat taken online in early 2012, Alan shares stories from his early years rehearsing and creating music with Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits. Eventually, we talk about touring with Eric Clapton and so many incredible stories in this episode, folks, that we had to break it into two, one for now and one below for later. Don't forget to follow me everywhere at Bradley McCaw Official. You can check out my music by searching Bradley McCaw at Spotify or Apple Music. And of course, you could join our newsletter by visiting BradleyMcCawOfficial.com. Now, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get this podcast or share this episode with a friend if you think it's something they might enjoy because that's going to be the best way for us to share incredible stories like this one. This part one of the chat begins in London with a young Alan finding his instrument, the very rare Hammond organ, in a shop window literally down the street from his school and then scoring his first gig at 13. This, to me, sounded like the perfect origin story for someone that would go on to be in one of the biggest bands of all time. And that's where we start. I'm Bradley McCaw, and this is Ramble City. Welcome to Ramble City. So, Alan, reading your biography and reading your CV is is kind of like for me reading through these these records that I've listened to most of my life and have admired and kind of have turned to for wisdom and turned to for kind of guidance on on what to do as a writer and as as a, as a creator. But the two things that really surprised me, um, starting out at the very top of your biography were that, you know, you had your first gig when you were 13 and there was this organ shop that was like just around the corner from your house, a Hammond organ, you know, store. And I mean, they are two inciting incidences that almost you know set the perfect the table perfectly for a musician to go on and and make some pretty incredible music was tell us about those early days starting out at 13 and first going into that that Hammond organ shop 
Yeah, that was that was um, a bit of good fortune. It was it was actually in the in the, the town, which was um, I, I grew up in a little village, and three miles away was the town where I went to grammar school when I was right. eleven, eleven till sixteen, and um, when I was about. Yeah, 13, I think. Yeah, it must have been 13, 12, even 12 maybe. This Hammond organ shop opened up in um, in the town, which was called Chest- Chesterley Street. And um, it just so happened that, um, well, the, all of the working man's clubs in, in the northeast of England, which were springing up all over the place, they were becoming really popular. Every town, every village even had had its own working man's club. And they had entertainment on, certainly at the weekend and often during the week too. And um, and they they started out with pianos. And then when Hammond organs became popular in the 60s, even the 50s, I guess, um, the club started replacing their pianos with Hammond organs because the pubs, the clubs were doing really good business and they could afford these um these uh, amazing instruments so and of course Hammond organs were much better suited to projecting sound than pianos anyway so um so uh, it just so happened that Chesterley Street where I was going to school was the perfect distribution point for um, all of the working man's clubs in in England and so this Hammond organ shop opened up in Chesterley Street which was bizarre really yeah I mean um, yeah who would have thought yeah, it, it was, um, but it was fortuitous for me because um, it meant I could go and play. They had the entire range of brand new Hammond organs from the smallest spinet models right through to the giant RT3 model, which was like a big church kind of model. And um, I just ended up going in there. My dad took me in there. My dad sort of popped in one day after work and met the guy, the, the, the manager, and um, he says, yeah, bring him along. And um, I had a bit of a flair for it, so and it started. It, it, it would attract people into the shop, which seeing this kid, this thirteen-year-old kid who could barely <laughs> playing playing the Hammond organ, and I started playing things like the Dam Busters and all sorts of um, uh, you know songs from the sh- you know shows, movies, and stuff like that. So it's and not this like was I was by playing. ear, right? You're playing this stuff by ear at this point. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. At thirteen, already, you know, charting up these this long list of material just to to pull out at the drop of a hat. It's always fascinated me how I knew these songs because we never had a record player at home. It's not like I I had these things on record and I could play a record and keep playing it and keep playing it to learn them. I just sort of heard them once almost, or heard them a couple of times, or I'd hear a song on the radio and I'd hear it twice, and I could pretty much, I could pretty much play the entire thing wow i've always had that ability to perceive music in in that way so um did that carry on through the next few years kind of you know into your 20s and 30s like not to jump ahead not at all to jump ahead i'm so fascinated about what we're talking about now but did that did that stick with you kind of a couple of plays through or even one play through and you got yeah yeah i got this no worries you know yeah well in order to be able to play on in order to survive in 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 the, in the thick end of the music industry, you have to be able to do that. To it, no to one it. wants to pay for three listens. They'll pay for one. They might pay for two listens, but not three. <laughs> well, I mean, you can go off and sort of chart it out, which sometimes is is absolutely necessary. You know, yeah. Like, well, if I'm learning something which is, um, which is crazy, you know, like particularly, you know, which you've got to get exactly right. Yeah. Um, 
yeah so i i do that occasionally and but uh yeah but most of the time I, I, i'm you know i'm pretty i'm pretty quick yeah wow so for anyone that doesn't know i guess playing the hammond organ differs from the piano in in style and in tone and i mean each of them are their own world and each of them have their own strengths and each of them have their own voices and all that sort of stuff but um in terms of when then you have kind of you know for anyone that that you know isn't a musician so i'm trying to sort of be a bit broad here alan you know so it's kind of an easy sort of jumping in point when you then take a Hammond organ and then you put it in a rock band or a rock ensemble or, you know, a blues, you know, trio or that, you know, a, 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 an R&B band or a soul band or whatever, both of those instruments, the keyboard player being the piano player and then the organ player, have two very different jobs to do or two different hats to wear, two different uniform forms to wear. Am I kind of summing this up kind of appropriately? Yeah. yeah. I think that uh, I've always likened the Hammond organ in that sort of environment, in in a band, to a, to more of an orchestral, right? More more of an orchestra, even. Yeah, right. Than, than than a piano. A piano is is percussive, and a piano is is a piano. Basically, you can't get away from a piano being a piano. Yeah, right. Yeah. A Hammond organ could be many things. It can be a, a single solo instrument. It can be the entire string section. It can be the brass section. Yeah. It can do lots of things. So that's the way I kind of env- envisaged the Hammond organ. That's how I went into rock music with the Hammond organ. And I just found that with the Hammond organ, I could, I, I would play with anybody. I, I would join, I would gladly join Weather Report on Hammond organ, you know. Yeah. For instance, you know, or, or some wild jazz music. So I could hold my own on the Hammond organ. Whereas so piano like, was, yeah. would be a specialized thing, you know. And do you remember the the first time you uh, started playing, you know, you mentioned Weather Report there before. Do you remember the first time that you kind of took this? I guess the question before kind of getting to that is, did you cart around your own Hammond back in those days? No. I mean, you wouldn't have had a little SK-1 like I would have now. You know, this kind of little tiny little Casio-sized keyboard that I can go and have this luxury of this, you know. I have. I haven't carried many Hammond organs. You could count on one hand the number of times I've had to carry a Hammond organ, really, I think. Yeah, right. Just they were always there at that time? I mean, of course, later on in your career, you know, Joe Blow is hoping he can push your Hammond along and come with you. But, I mean, is yeah, yeah in those even in those early days, there was just, I guess, the working clubs had the Hammonds there. They did, yeah. And then yeah. when I started, it was when I started playing in bands, after I was playing in, in, in working man's clubs and nightclubs, and um, I spent a year on a cruise ship actually playing in a band on a cruise ship in um, in the Caribbean. They didn't that have was, an organ on the. They didn't have an organ on the ship, did they? Uh, yeah. yeah. No way. Gosh, I mean, times have changed, Alan. This is this is crazy. This is the craziest part of the conversation to me that there was just these Hammond organs sitting all over the planet waiting to well, be played. When I first went out of the ship, I was playing piano for a, for the first few weeks or months or whatever. Yeah. And then, um, but then I made sure that 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 a Hammond organ was. Um, in fact, I bought a Hammond organ. Let me think about it. I bought a Hammond organ in Miami, and uh, and and stuck it on the ship, and then had it shipped back to England. And um, afterwards, after after spending a year on the ship, and then um, 
I started playing in, in nightclubs and club and, and working man's clubs again. And then I, I decided I should start getting a bit more serious about my career and, and get into rock music and join a band. And um, so I, I joined a few bands. Um, I joined one band and and I was with them for a year and I made about, I think I made 40 pounds. <laughs> so I, the big time so at that time, the big time. Yeah, so, so, you know, and by then I was used to making quite a fair bit of money. So, it was a bit, you know, I went off to London and um, ended up coming back and playing in the clubs to support myself. But um, gradually I um, started picking up bands and and then um, it got a bit more and more, seri- more and more serious and then eventually Dire Straits came along and um, I, was just, I think I was just growing up basically. I was, I was leaving childhood behind and um, getting a bit more serious in my life, you know, so it was... Yeah, was right. Kind of, I think I was 21 when I... When I um, I was probably twenty. It was it was when I was working on the cruise ship. Actually, I um, started listening to music a lot more. You know. Yeah. So when the gig finished at whatever time midnight or whatever, I'd go back to my cabin and um, stick um, stick on a cassette that I'd bought in in Miami the previous Saturday. Yeah. And I. Uh, so I was listening to the Yes album, and I was listening to Elton John, um, Hunky Chateau, and uh, all sorts of things. The Eagles, and so I just started getting much more interested in 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 the music of my generation. Really, I guess that's 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 the that sums it up perfectly. Really, and then just building on, just adding all these these songs to the to the yeah to the catalog and building it it's amazing all right let's take a, a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about um oh geez some of the incredible records you've played on uh can't wait we'll be right back So there's all these cliches, Alan, about um, a band is like a family or a band is like a workplace. You know, a, you know, everyone's got a different relationship and everyone gets along or some people are closer than others. And in that, there is some kind of magic. And you've played, from my point of view, in some just these ensembles that we look back and we, we go, oh, yeah, wow, to be a fly on the wall in that time. I mean, you mentioned joining Dire Straits. Um Later on, playing in Eric Clapton's band, uh, going on tour with with Tina Turner. I imagine each one of those ensembles was worked worked in a very different way, from rehearsal to recording to, um, gosh, travel. I'm sure. So, starting with sort of joining Dire, dire Straits, I heard you uh, tell a story where you got a call from the manager to see if you wanted to come and play with these guys, and uh, whether you may or might not be interested, but they wouldn't tell you the name of who it was. That's quite. That's quite an interesting story. Sort of laying this set up for how you joined this band and what they were like. Yeah, I remember lying. I was lying in bed, um, and the phone. The phone rang. It was I was having a bit of a lie in? I think. Yeah. Right. It was, it was about ten thirty in the morning. The phone rang. So, um, and it was uh, this guy called Paul Cummings, who was the second in command of assistant manager of Dire Straits, and. Um, he didn't tell me the name of the band. He said, "He says, um, would you be interested in in joining a um, an established band, or however, how, how, however he put it, um, and come, and or would you would you be interested in coming along to 
to the rehearsal to play. You know, the, it was never the, the word audition was never mentioned. Yeah, right. Um, so I let him finish, and I said, "Well, who is it?" He says, "Oh, well, I, I can't tell you that." I says, "Oh, well, forget it then." Yeah. Because at this is stage, that- you didn't really need to go and do it. Things were happening. You were playing with, you know, you were playing. You know, you didn't need to sort of go off and hustle for something, right? Yeah, I was. I was kind of doing things with. Uh, I'd been. I had been playing with Gallagher and Lyle. Yeah. And, um, I was just about to. I was just about to do a festival tour with Lindisfarne <laughs> in, in, in England, which was there, which was thoroughly enjoyable. A great, great bunch of guys, and I'm still friends with them now. It's it's cool. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I just said, oh, well, forget it. If you if you can't tell me the name, but so he did. Dire Straits. So I went, aha. I, and I knew Dire Straits because a, a, a friend of mine was a big, big fan of Dire Straits of the first two albums. Yeah. So, um, and he played me them, and I, you know, and I f- I'd found them interesting, but um, because they didn't have keyboards in, it wasn't something that I necessarily I would gravitate towards. Yeah. Um, You'd be thinking, where am I going to fit in this ensemble? You know, great band. Well, and, you know. On the other hand, no. But but when he said Dire Straits and um, they 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 need a keyboard player, it was like ding. Right. I, Wow, this is this is like a this is an an open an open canvas a blank canvas. First thing we need to do, guys, is less Mark and more me. Uh, <laughs> less guitar, more keys. I think this would be an Elton John band. What do you think, Mark Knopfler? No, I'm joking, obviously. <laughs> no, great. So so you get the ding moment. You think, yeah, this could this could be for me. What happens next? Uh, so I went along to the audition, and uh, to, I mean to the sorry to the to the rehearsal, <laughs> and. Um, and yeah, so Paul Cummins picked me up at uh, Kings Cross Railway Station. I took the train down. I lived up in in the northeast at the time, and um, and uh, he picked me up and and drove me to um, South London. And in the car, I listen, I I heard the Making Movies album, which they just recorded. So for the first time, I heard Tunnel of Love, Romeo and Juliet, um, and I thought, yeah, this is uh, this could be good. Because yeah, wow. the good thing is Roy Batan, they they'd got Roy Batan from the E Street Band, who I was aware of as as being like an amazing, you know, one of the people who make the piano work in rock music, which yeah. is quite rare, really. You know, most yeah. people try but fail. Yeah. <laughs> but Roy, Roy Batan is is uh, is a is a true exponent of the piano in rock music. Wonderful. So. Um, I thought, yeah, this is this is pretty good. So that gave me the direction of obviously of where to start, you know. Yeah. And um Oh, so in the car you're actually you're actually listening to this going, All right, I can hear little cues about where to go and where to possibly take things as we well, work some material. Was, more than that, there was a, there was like established um quite material. Uh, yeah, touche. No, I mean tunnel of love and stuff that is is Big, big piano sort of uh, contribution, Romeo and Juliet. Of course, oh, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, n- yeah. D- d- now I'm getting a ding moment. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I just I went along, I went, I went along, and um, it all went very well. And then that that night, so um, I, I stayed with John Ilsley, the bass player, and um, so it was like, okay, tomorrow we'll do. Um, I can't remember which song it was. Let's say Romeo and Juliet. So after the rehearsal 
on the first day, I went back to John's house and charted out Romeo and Juliet, ex- what Roy Batan had played on Romeo and Juliet, pretty much. So that, so when I, I went in the next day, stuck the chart on the piano. Okay, here we go, prong, and played wow. it. Wow, Jesus! You know, it was like, wow, <laughs> you know, that works. <laughs> and then, and then we started delving into um, uh, songs from the first two albums which didn't have keyboards on, or if they did, they were negligible. Yeah. Um, and uh, which, so that was a blank canvas for me. So, um, and and we started building up, you know, I immediately started imposing my um, my uh, thing onto the onto the band. So, you know, like I'd say, hey, how about starting this intro on, on, the, on the piano or whatever and, and and so on it went and so and that that the next night I'd learn I'd go back and do do the chart for um, Tunnel of Love, yeah, and come on went in the next day stuck stuck the chart on the piano here we go played the entire thing and uh, it was like yikes you know <laughs> and so at the end uh, so on the Friday that that we started on the Monday on the Friday. It was like uh, we went to the pub and Mark said, um, you're in. So a bottle of red wine and um, enough, uh, and that was it. And do you remember sort of by the end of it, I'm always curious with, you know, there are certain lineups for certain songwriters that just really work. You know, that, that you can look through a catalogue and you can see there are times with a certain ensemble that things are just like out of this world. You know, maybe it's material, maybe it's the the atoms between these people and the creativity that happens between them that really makes something cook. Did you feel like that at the time or were you just kind of like, here's my chart, let's go, um, let's just really nail this and, and do it? Or did it did it feel at the time already like it was, this is good music, you know? I mean, it's not straight, don't get yeah. me wrong. <laughs> of course, it, it was good music. But whenever I play with with anybody, I I am. It's almost like I kind of go, okay, make some, you know, make, make some, some room. space for me, yeah, because I'm coming in, you know, yeah, and and, um, and so I develop an entire thick keyboard thing which fits perfectly in the music but takes yeah. a big takes a big space takes a yeah makes makes an impression in other words i don't sort of sit on the top yeah like a lot of, a lot of keyboard players come in and sort of twinkly add, twinkle yeah add, add, add little bits i sort of um, make a make big inroads into the song and and then you know quite often in rehearsals i'll i'll i'll, I'll stop i'll say stop halfway through and say, I've got an idea. How about we do? We had an entire new section here, or we, you know, or, or intros. You know, I may, I'll create a huge intro during a, during the break in the rehearsal. I'll just have an idea and I'll start tinkering with a few chords. And then when everybody comes back, I'll say, "Here, how about this?" And yeah, wow, that happens, that happens so many times. For instance, the um, 
the the intro for uh, Money for Nothing didn't exist until I came up with the entire concept of I want my MTV. Alan, I we can't get to that yet because I'm so fascinated to ask you about that because I was just sort of jamming along to it last night trying to left trying to find these little different patches that were in there. Oh yeah, there's some sort of clav. Oh yeah, there's a little synth there. That's um yeah, that's incredible. That's I can't wait to talk about Brothers in Arms um sort of a little bit later. So Love Over Gold, I mean, there's a, it's a, what is it? It's a five track album that, you know, goes for six hours. I'm being funny, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of instrumental playing on these records. So it was almost the person, the perfect environment for a keyboard player or for yourself that's going to come in and say, all right, what about this? You know, let's really open this up or let's, let's get in here. And, and it seemed like it was the perfect environment for that. Yeah. Well, Mark, by then, Mark was already writing songs with me in mind, because yep. he, he was Mark was quite fascinated with the piano. I mean, he's he's a fr- he is a frustrated piano player, Mark. But he, is he, he really? Never, well, yeah. He he grew up listening to his uncle Kingsley, who was a bit of a boogie woogie piano player. Right. So he, yeah. he was fascinated with piano, but could never never find his way on it. So, um, yeah. So, Love Over Gold was by then it was like I'd been in the band for a couple of years or so and um, so he Love was of a Girl was the first album you played on wasn't it am I, am yes. I right on that was that the first yeah correct yep. yeah I think so yeah 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 yeah. there might have been a live something before that I'm not sure maybe after that but yeah anyway that's neither here nor there yeah. but Alchemy Alchemy yeah I think was after maybe was it after Love of a Gold I can't remember I think you're right no no I think you're right seeing as you were there and I wasn't I'm gonna go with what you think <laughs> I'm only guessing it was a long time ago, you know. Sure. But I yeah, guess so, I've probably listened to it more than you, so maybe I should go with me. <laughs> I, I can guarantee you will have listened to it more than me. The actual album, although I, I'm, I'm sure I've heard every tune more than you. Yeah, touche, yeah. So what was the process like on Love Over Gold? Going in and, 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 and making that record. Because one of the things I noticed, I guess, I guess talking about Brothers in Arms, is that I read somewhere that you guys had rehearsed all the tunes before you went to the Caribbean to start working on them. Yes. Yeah, that they were all written and rehearsed. And so this process that you're talking about to kind of um, really iron out arrangements and things like that, that was obviously a big part of what you guys did yeah, all the time. In, uh, Dire Straits always rehearsed um, a lot before... Yeah, right. Before any any uh, album uh, gig, um, any so so yeah, we would spend. We probably spent three weeks. Some probably three weeks. I, I can't remember exactly. Um, maybe even a month. Um, yeah, rehearsing right. rehearsing um, the album before we went to New York and recorded it, Love Over Gold. And we yep. did that in, in the, uh, the Wood Wharf, which was the, the, the rehearsal place that I first went to. It was in, in South London, right on the, on the Thames, overlooking the river with wow. all of the barges that used to... And across, across the river is now the O2 gig. Whoa, right. right. So, yeah. So... Um, 
what would happen is Mark and I would go would go in there an hour or so early before everyone else, and he would play me the tune. Yeah. So, um, this, for instance, "Love Over Gold," he would he, he would play the tune to me on on acoustic guitar, which is the entire thing, the entire song. Um, but starting with the the melody, yeah, with, with the vocal and ending with the vocal. And by the time the the band arrived, an hour and a half later or wherever it was, um, we would have worked up some. I would have worked up some piano part, probably the probably the intro and the the piano intro and the entire um, and the entire thing, and then and then we'd work through the song that day, and come up with all sorts of different aspects to it, and. Um, yeah, so and we'd spend three days or something on 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 one song, just letting it evolve, taking our time. And Mark and I have always said that rehearsals, those rehearsals, rehearsals to before albums or before tours, they're so creative. It's it's our mm. favorite time. It's my favorite time of the entire process. I mean, every 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 aspect of the of the process of making music is great. It's recording playing live, whatever it is. Maybe not miming on some obscure TVs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excuse me, that's hilarious. <laughs> but the best the best the best bit. The best bit is the is is the create is the creative bit, which is um, yeah. the rehearsals. When when we're we have a we can do whatever we want and and we do. And yeah. And um you know I'm. I, th- this is probably an exaggeration, but I can't remember anybody else in the band other than Mark and I, who made suggestions about um, arrangements or um, or that that whole that whole side of the music. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty much Mark, well, Mark and I that were that were working together. Um, and uh, and Mark was very very receptive to um, to my um, to my ideas, which was wonderful. As you were telling that story, I had this flash to um, to the classic album documentary. It was about one of the Steely Dan records. I can't remember what it was, but the the session guys that were coming in and it was one of the 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 row of the you know 17 guitarists that they had to take a pass at you know peg until they sort of found the vibe that they wanted and i was picturing kind of the amount of time that they would have just kind of done this process and again and again and again of every song and this is in a way and what they would do to finish that thought is they would continue to kind of refine it until the players knew the material and then they could play it with some sort of spontaneity because you couldn't have it too perfect. It had to be a little loose or it had to be a little free or, um, you know, that point past whatever perfect is. I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not these guys. I, I don't have that sort of faculty to be frank. So, but it sounds like that's what you guys were doing in a sense, that same thing, but without the pressure of kind of paying a studio bill <laughs> is you were kind of just refining and exploring and except this sounds like it was, really creative and really sculpting these um 
in a sense, sometimes jazz arrangements of these of these rock and roll tunes, you know? That's exactly it. I mean, literally note for note. Yeah. Amazing. Sometimes, sometimes I'd stop and say, hey, hang on. Let's, let's, let's make the bass note an inversion of the chord or whatever it is, or, or let's throw this chord in here. Or, I mean, for instance, the song Private Investigations is a, is a classic example. Private Investigations started with, with um, Mark, Mark playing, playing once, round, once round on acoustic guitar. Yeah. This is, this is in the rehearsal. Mark and I were, were together in the, in the rehearsal room before everybody else arrived. And then, uh, and then he started talking the song. And so the entire, but but then I started adding during the rehearsal. I started adding um, the bit before that, the whole the whole moody build up before that, and then the whole play out was based around. Mark had this um, this idea of uh, of playing the, the the songs in E minor, so. The C chord, jing, jing, and that's that's pretty much all he had for the for an idea for a playout. So the whole rest of it was I I built the piano part around around that those two chords. So you end up with that ding, 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 and all and all that sort of thing, and did 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 did, did. all of, all of that just came out in the rehearsals while we were sort of lying around twiddling with stuff and what was the running time in the end of that track i'm just trying to look it up as we're talking quite a long time i think seven minutes yeah six six minutes and 45 so what about telegraph road that ends up at 14 minutes and 18 seconds i mean when you guys handed that in did the label sort of look at you and like <laughs> did did anyone sort of go no no you're taking the piss i mean eight minutes nine minutes we can live with but 14 minutes as track one track one is 14 minutes wow yeah. Amazing. I wasn't there at the time, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, All right. That, that, yeah. Now that, that song came about because Mark was writing that when we were out on tour on the previous on the previous tour, which would have been um, yeah the making movies tour. Yeah. So he was writing that then, and um, I remember going round America. Uh, and in, in sound checks, we'd, we'd do the sound check, and then Mark and I would stay on the stage, and he would say, "Right, okay, so, well, first of all, I've got this song, and then he would play me the first bit, and then the next day he'd, he'd written another bit, and so on and so on. And so with every bit of the song, he and I sat down together because he, he wanted it to be a, a, a piano-based number. Yeah. So... I would um, find the piano, the way to play the piano, the piano part as the song was evolving. Wow. And so the way it involved, the way the song evolved as he was writing it was also dependent upon the way that I, that the piano part that I was playing the previous day or that day. Yeah, it was kind of chicken and the egg or just kind of passing this thing and it kept inspiring backwards and forwards. Exactly. It's it, that that's such a fascinating thing to me about just how much where where this point of spontaneity kind of keeps inspiring everything forward and 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 it's such a lofty wanky kind of thing to talk about but um 
you know, it's two wires always rubbing against each other. It doesn't matter which they are and where they are. It's always something that kind of pushes the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. And, and I think sometimes with these classic albums, I feel like that we don't appreciate the magic that came about to leave these things as part of the legacy of these things. I think we really take them for granted, um, personally. All the magic that had to coincide for that to happen. You know, it could have just been one day you guys decided, this is rubbish. I don't know. We must have been drunk. Yeah, I think we were, Mark. We were drunk. Yeah, Alan, we were. Let's forget this. You know, and how many times did this build and, and inspiration cross back and forwards until in the end, you know, this song ends up on a record and travels around the world and brings a lot of joy. And and I'm not trying to blow smoke up anyone, you know, the work speaks for itself and who am I to talk about it. But I do think that's something that we don't appreciate is kind of the chance that kind of leaves us with this stuff. It blows my mind sometimes that it, you know, that these songs are so perfect. How does that ever happen? Mark's a, Mark is a fantastic songwriter. Yeah. And, and he has be- great belief in himself. You know, he, he, Mark's written some, you know, not so good songs. Yeah. But but uh, not many. Most of the uh, most of the songs by far are absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And he's as I said, he's very receptive to um to genuine creative input. Yeah. Which is what I've always given him. Yeah. And you know, and, and the opportunity to work on such amazing material as Mark's is um is uh was a gift. Yeah. Well mm. let's take a let's let's take another quick breather and let's come back and let's jump into Brothers in Arms and and make my little childhood dream come true. (laughs) This has been Ramble City, a podcast of conversations with interesting people musing on art, life and their careers, created and produced by Old Fashioned Media. To hear more and discover additional material from today's episode, visit ofm.com. (laughs) 